John chapter 15, looked at the first five verses last week. We're going to kind of, we're going to go back. We're going to backtrack a little bit today. We're going to look at the first five verses again, but then uh, trudge on forward through verse 11. There's some things that I want to take a look at here that are very important. And there, there's uh, one particular passage I was telling someone before the service. I, I really ended up just kind of rooting around it and just digging deep and and getting as much understanding as I could in this particular area of Scripture, because this is a major, major section. So it's major as it, as, as it applies to us individually. It's major as it applies to us as the church. Not a church, but the church of Jesus Christ. The church in, in the larger sense. And so uh, we've last week looked at Jesus, where he introduces himself in this section, He says, I am the true vine. And we looked at the fact that he says, I am the vine. If you literally break that that sentence down, I am the vine, the true. And we looked at that. He actually is making two statements there. We talked about that. We looked at the fact that Israel, uh, or that in God's economy, in the Bible, that there were three vines presented. We looked at the vine of the earth, which is an evil vine. It's the vine of man. It's the vine of of Satan in that sense, because we know whose earth this is, but it won't be for long. And so we looked at the vine of the earth, and we looked at Israel as the vine of God, that they were considered the vine of God through the Old Testament. They were the ones who God had actually commissioned to be a light unto the nations, and as a light to the nations, that they were to bring salvation to the nations. They were God's representation on earth, and they failed miserably at times, uh, I, I love looking at the book of Judges because it's this whole thing of, of Israel's doing well, they're seeking the Lord, and then they, they prosper, and then they go right downhill. And then they repent because God allows things to get hard. He allows nations to come against them, and then, and then they start to seek the Lord, and they're doing good, and then pretty soon right downhill, back in the, uh, in the trenches again. And that whole book is this up and down thing. And I look at that as, as, as the life of Israel, and yes, they were to be the vine, but they couldn't seem to hold it together because they kept turning inward instead of outward. God's design for you and I is to turn outward. To be, We have been given the ministry of reconciliation. We've been given the ministry of reconciling the world to him, to Jesus. And so we see that as the vine of God, Israel failed. And we looked at, remember, we looked in Matthew 21, we looked at the parable of the wicked vine dressers and, or the parable of the vineyard, however you want to consider it. We talked about how God actually revoked Israel's light. He pulled them back. He said, no longer will that be coming from you. Remember when he talked to the Samaritan woman, he said, salvation's from the Jews, but the time is coming when you won't worship here in Jerusalem uh, and you won't worship at this mountain. He's talking about Gerizim in, in Samaria. But, but he says, but those who worship him will worship in spirit and truth. The Father seeks those who will worship him that way. And so Jesus indicates a change there. And in Matthew 21, the day after the triumphal entry, he actually pulls it, he excommunicates the nation. And he says, no longer. I'm going to take this from you. And what he did is he didn't take it and put it onto the church. He put it onto himself. Now, he would be the sole author of salvation. Now, he would be the one who would be the light to the world. I am the light of the world. That's what he was talking about. No longer was it Israel. Now it was Messiah. 
And so having done that, we look at that. And so in that setting where he has now done that a couple of days before these things take place in John 15, uh, he comes and he tells the guys plainly, he says, I am the vine, the true. And so as we looked at these things, we, remember we looked at four things last week also. I just want to recap briefly so that we can kind of pick up the momentum of where we're going to go today. The first is that the father has always been the vine dresser. Uh, and Israel had been the vine of God since her birth as a nation, and now that was changed. Because Israel's rebellion, the second thing we looked at was their rebellion produced wild grapes. They were fruitless. Remember, we looked at wild grapes. What happens if you take care of the vineyard, if you take care of the vine, you take care of the branches and you prune them, you have to prune them frequently because otherwise you get all leaves and little bitty grapes that aren't really good for much. And so what he's talking about here is that Israel's rebellion had caused them to become wild grapes, these small fruitless grapes that were not good for anything. And so in that, as he excommunicated Israel uh, as the vine of God, number four, he asserted himself as the genuine vine. We looked at last week as we wrapped up the fact that is God finished with Israel because he has now excommunicated them from their position as the light, as the light to the Gentiles, and as the vine of God, taking that on to himself. So does that mean that God is finished with that nation? And we looked in Romans chapter 11, where Paul plainly says, the apostle Paul plainly says, no, he is not. And there's a lot of theology out there today, folks. There's been, it's been going, I mean, Martin Luther, the, the guy, that the author of the Reformation, Part of what he nailed on that Wittenberg church door was that he rejected Israel as being uh, still in God's plan. And he put, he was a replacement theologian. He replaced Israel as being the inheritor of God's promises with the church. That's not what Jesus does here. And he specifically doesn't do that here. The church is absolutely uh, the outgrowth of Christ, and we'll get into that as we go, and God is not finished with that nation Israel. There is so much, if there's a beautiful exposition here in Romans 9, 10, and 11 about God's disposition towards Israel, and it's rich. I would encourage you to read it on your own if you want to understand his disposition towards that nation, for, towards the people. There will be a righteous remnant that comes out of Israel. The book of Revelation is very clear that 144,000 is 12,000 from each tribe. So if he were finished, that wouldn't be so. Uh, anyway, and man, I'm getting out in the weeds on that because I want to stay focused. We've got a lot of ground to cover here. But in Romans chapter 9, Paul has some interesting things to say. He says that he has a profound sorrow and a continual grief in his heart concerning the Jews. In, in, in verse 3 of chapter 9, he says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. What he's saying in that is that if it, would, if, if it were possible, if it were something that would benefit the Jews, I would actually consider myself severed from Christ, that they could come. And, and he knew that that was, but he, what he's doing is he's conveying the strength of, of this grief, of this sorrow that he has towards the Jews because they had rejected Messiah. And they, being the, God's chosen people to that point, had, had totally shut him out. And Paul was very sorrowful about that. He used to play on that team when he was going out and arresting Christians and, and tending to their deaths. And so he, he has that. What he's saying, though, is that the worst thing he could imagine, 
Think about it, folks. For you, if you're a Christian here this morning, what is the worst thing that you could imagine? To be severed from Christ. To be cut off from the promises of God. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, you know, if that would benefit the Jews, I would do it. Have you ever, I remember my daughter was very sick for, she was in the hospital for a year, back in the year 2000, 2001. And, and I remember going into the emergency or the intensive care unit over and over again. And I just had this, this grief inside, this sorrow inside it. And, and it was that of a father and going, honey, if I could just get in that bed and take your place, I would do it. I would do it. And I knew I can't, but that's the strength that Paul's talking about here. If I were to be severed from Christ, contrast that to the greatest thing, the best imaginable thing that we have, that we possess in our lives, and that's to be in union with Christ, to be united to Christ, to be considered his son or his daughter. There is nothing greater in this life that is the highest thing that we could attain in this life is to know that that, that one that went and hung on that cross 2,000 years ago, that the, the penalty that he paid for me, for you, is in effect today as strongly as it was as his blood poured out. Very, very, very important. So when you look at that, nothing is greater theologically than our understanding that our life is in him. And that's what Jesus is talking about, is our life is in him. And nothing is greater experientially as I understand that knowledge. You, knowledge, uh, you'll always act on what you believe. And so if I understand that and I believe it, my life will show it. And, and my life will show because I will live my life according to the will of the Son of God as much as I'm able to discern what that is by the power of the Holy Spirit. I say all of this, hang with me here. It's a lengthy introduction to what we're talking about this morning because it's very important that we understand the, the, the foundation that we're going to build on because we have a firm foundation in him and I don't want you to get the wrong idea for what's being said here. This is critical. So there's nothing more horrifying to an unbelieving heart, an unrepentant heart, than to come at that day when it's too late to realize that these things were true and that they rejected. And now judgment awaits. That's a tough deal. That's a tough thing to think about, but it's true. So in this, we see that experience follows understanding. All right? As I have understanding, my life will show to the degree to which I understand. When I see people out there that are caught up in all the false doctrine that's out there these days, people that are departed from the word of God being the thing that informs our thinking, the spirit of God being the one who brings it alive to us. When that is departed from, if my understanding of God is that he's a God that is, that he just, he's not, that when he came to earth, here's, here's one false doctrine that's very prevalent today, that when he came to earth, he got rid of his deity, which is absolutely not true because he's fully God, fully man. Jesus, God the man. And, and that, that when he dumped his deity, then he set it up to where you and I, we're going to go around and do the same miracles that he did because after all, we're sons of God and we have the same power and authority as him. Nonsense. 
See, it sounds good. That's why there are, there are groups and groups of people out there and they have these seminars that are all about miracle working and all about all of the hype and the flash and the stuff. I submit to you that they're a mile wide and an inch deep. It's not good doctrine. I'm not saying that God doesn't do miracles. I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit is not alive and well in the hearts and minds of his people. I'm saying that if you twist your understanding of God, your life is going to show it, and you're going to end up doing things that amount to what the Bible calls, even as a believer, in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians Paul says, those things that we did in the body that were good, they'll be as gold and silver and precious gems, but the things that we did uh, through a misunderstanding or ill-gotten motives that they'll be as wood and hay and stubble. They'll be burned in that sense. So as we look at this, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go through the first 11 verses here in John 15, and then we're gonna come back and unpack it a bit, try to take a look at some things that are actually controversial, uh, and we'll look at both sides, and then um, we'll go with what I, what I believe is being said. Uh, 15.1, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches." He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they're burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask whatever you desire, and it shall be done for you. This is, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit." so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is a powerful passage. I was uh, studying this week and I came across, I don't know if you guys know who Hudson Taylor was. Uh, he was the founder of an organization called China Inland Mission. And he, in, in the mid-1800s, led hundreds of missionaries into China's interior for the first time. He was a pioneering missionary. He, he was actually the father of modern missions as we know it. It was the pattern that he set forth that shaped the way that we look at mission work today. And I'm going to read something here about him. Uh, he was 11 times. He went to China 11 times, spent most of his adult life in China, starting in 1854 at the age of 22. Fifteen years later, in 1869, at the age of 37, he came to a new place of understanding God in his life. He began to drink more deeply at the experiential fountain of John 15, 1 through 11, the passage we're looking at this morning. He was given a deeper and more constant, more satisfying experience of abiding in Christ. This is what his son Frederick Howard uh, Taylor said in 1932. He says, here was a man almost 60 years of age bearing tremendous burdens at absolutely calm and untroubled. 
Oh, the pile of letters, any one of which might contain news of death, of lack of funds, of riots, or serious trouble. Yet all were open, all were read and answered with the same tranquility. Christ, his reason for peace, his power for calm. Dwelling in Christ, he drew upon his very being and resources. And this he did by an attitude of faith as simple as it was continuous. He was, yet he was delightfully free and natural. I can find no words to describe it save the scriptural expression, in God. He was in God all the time, and God in him. It was that true abiding of John 15. Folks, there are some keys in this passage that are life-transforming, and I am not exaggerating. You apply God's word in these ways as far as what it means to truly to abide in Christ and to be in a place where you can trust him. You know that his, his grace is upon your life. You know that his promises are real and they're, they're tangible. They're for you. You know that as you draw near to him, he draws near to you. And that as the vine, he is the one who sustains your very life. As we look at this, I would encourage you, apply God's word to your life. I'm not saying that you're in some lack now. I'm saying that he may want to do a new work in your life. He may want to, to produce new growth as you go. I want to back up as we look at this. We're going to come back. We're going to, we're going to take this apart a bit. But I want to start in John 14, 31, the last verse in John chapter 14, because it connects to what Jesus is saying here. He says, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. And we've talked about where they went, and, and you know, I, I believe they went up on the roof and the vine clippings and all that stuff, and other people say they went by the temple. We don't know. But the important thing is, he says here, he says, in other words, he, says, he puts his entire ministry, especially these final saving hours, uh, under the command of his Father. I do as the Father commanded me, is what he's saying here. Then he says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. I want to stop and talk about what a metaphor is. Folks understand what a metaphor is? Here's a literal uh, thing from the dictionary. It's a figure of speech in which a phrase is applied to an object or action to which it is not literally applicable. So when Jesus, for example, here, he says, I'm the vine, my father's a vine dresser. Uh, he's, he's giving a metaphor. He is not literally a grape plant. We know that. Uh, and, and you can't, I mean, you can't make these things walk on all fours. I mentioned that briefly talking about parables. The same applies here to metaphors. You got to be really careful to stick with the intent of the metaphor. You've got to stick with the intent of the parable. If you go beyond that, you can stray into really bad understanding. You can actually stray into falsehood and, and, and bad doctrine. But here, what is the metaphor, metaphor for? Uh, we looked last week at, at, at this, and, and briefly, because again, I, I, the whole point of last week's message was to demonstrate that when Jesus said, I'm the vine of God, he wasn't just saying something kind of willy-nilly that, you know, hey, I'm kind of like a great tree and you're kind of like branches. Yeah, that's what he was saying, but he was giving a, a very valid metaphor for what our relationship to him looks like. And, and so I want to go on to verse two here, and then we'll, we'll, again, we'll visit this idea of the metaphor as we go along. 
He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Question, what is the fruit that Jesus speaks of here? What does he mean when he talks about bearing fruit? A branch in me that bears fruit. The Bible is very clear. The New Testament is very clear that we don't produce anything on our own. Jesus says that in, in, in verse 5 here. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. He doesn't say, apart from me, you can do a little. This is nothing. In, in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says, it's impossible in the flesh to please God. It is not possible. God is not here to fix your life up. He is not here to make you a better person. That is absolutely worldly thinking. He says there needs to be a death in your family and that needs to be you. I die daily is what Paul says. So when he's talking about this, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. What is the fruit? Galatians 5 talks about the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And so when we look at that, what's a deed? It's something you do. It's not about doing, folks. It's about being a branch in this context. It's about being his disciple. And so uh, when I think about, I look at Romans 6.23. I'll try to remember it. Uh, oh, don't you, doesn't it bug you when you have something right in your mind and it's gone? Um, he says, the wages of sin, it just came back, <laughs> just a temporary leak. Uh, the wages of sin is death in Romans 6.23, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. What's a wage? It's something you earn. How do you earn it? By doing. He contrasts that with the gift of God. And so what we're talking about here is things that you do versus ways that we are. And when he's talking about abiding, it's not about doing, it's about being. I, I want to make that clear going in. So this fruit that he's talking about is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's the only thing that can apply here. And he's, in, he's already talked about the Holy Spirit in chapter 14 when he said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans, and when I go, I'll send the helper, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the one to come alongside, and he will be the one who gives you the ability to move forward. And he is going to talk about the Holy Spirit further on here in chapter 15, and then in chapter 16, uh, and I, I can't wait till we get there, because he just kind of blows the doors off the whole ministry of the Holy Spirit, and we'll look at the error that's out there, that people want to make the Holy Spirit look a certain way, and then we'll talk about the truth of what he says when we look at the threefold ministry of the Holy Spirit. Here, when he's talking about fruit, you can't produce fruit unless you abide in the vine. He's talking about the work of the Spirit. The nourishment that we have as Christians is something that's communicated to us from him through the agency of the Holy Spirit, the second or the third person of the Trinity. And so as we look at this, keep in mind when fruit bearing is talked about, it's his fruit being produced in my life. So what's not being said here, and now I want to look at this passage one more time. In verse 2, he says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So what's not being said here, folks, is that if you're not bearing enough fruit, you're out of here. 
That's not what's being said. He's not saying, Christian, you need to be insecure. I love it when people ask me, you know, about eternal security. And, 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 and I really believe this. It's not just a pat answer. It's, and, and I sincerely, with all sincerity, say, don't ask me about yours. As for me, I am absolutely secure, eternally. I have no doubt. I don't wring my hands over it. I, it's, a, it's a settled issue in my life. I belong to Christ. And if you know in your heart that your life is linked to him through the power of the cross, through him going to that cross to, to, forget, to die for your sins, and you believe that, and your life now, having become a cleansed vessel, he has come in and, and he works and he rules and reigns in your heart through the Holy Spirit, you can make the same claim. It's really important that we understand what he's saying here. What he's not saying here is that salvation is conditional upon how much fruit is in your life. There will be fruit if you belong to him because as you abide in him, that's what happens. We'll look at that more as we go. But he's not saying that this is some works-based deal to where the grace of God is now null and void. No, it's solely by the grace of God through faith, simply believing him, trusting him. That salvation comes about and that we are now linked with him as a, as a branch is linked to the root, to, the, to the, the, the plant itself. Can a person be born again, as we see in John 3, 3 and 3, 5 and 7 and 8, and then be lost? Can a person be a child of God through faith, as we see in John 1, 12, and then not be a child? Can a person be one of Christ's sheep, as we see in John 10, 14 through 16, and then not be his sheep? The, the simple, the short answer to that, folks, I believe very clearly, is no. God doesn't grant salvation and then pull it away. We can be secure in that. In John 10, 27, talking about his sheep, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Never means never. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one's able to snatch them out of my father's hand. That, I mean, there are plenty of verses I could have spent the rest of our time this morning going from verse after verse that talk about being secure eternally as a believer. But that also begs the question, what's he talking about here when he says takes away? See, this is never intended to create fear in the life of a true believer of his. It's not. We should be secure. And I want to make that really clear as we unpack this more. So when he talks about it, he takes away, there's a couple of different translations here and they actually result in the opposite. Uh, I should say interpretations, not translations. Uh, but it's, it's how you translate the Greek words takes away. It could mean to lift up in order to strengthen. Uh, that's consistent with God's heart. He lifts us up. He's the lifter of my head. He is the one who strengthens me as I walk. He's the one that when I stumble, gets me going right again. But I don't believe that that's what he's talking about here. I believe that what he's talking about here is, is that there's a pruning that goes on. There are two types of pruning, not three. This isn't, he prunes the dead branches away and they're, they're done. 
verse 6 supports that it takes away means takes away to remove fruitless growth altogether when it talks about throwing fruitless branches into the fire. I don't believe that you can make that work with lifting up the branches, even though he does that. Do you understand what I'm saying? This text doesn't indicate that, in my opinion. And if you believe that, I'm fine with that. We really don't need to divide over it or argue over it. At the end of the day, we'll know when we get there. But I believe, as I've looked at the textual context, you guys know the way that I study, I look at the textual context, I look at the contextual context, I look at the historical context, and I look at the cultural context. Culturally, you could make a case for lifting up because they grew grapes on the ground in Israel. And they lifted them up. And they washed them because we looked at when he talks about pruning them, that's the same word for cleansing. Uh, it's the same word we get catharsis from, which is an emotional cleansing in us that happens like when you cry and you feel a whole lot better after you cry. Not men. I'm not talking to men. Uh, <laughs> But when you feel a lot better after you cry, it's, that's catharsis. That's a cleansing that goes on inside. It's, it's power. That's the same Greek word at, at its root. So, yeah, you can make a case for lifting up, and it's consistent with his character, his nature, that he does that because he loves us, and he knows we stumble in many ways. And yet, here in this passage, I think Jesus is talking about two things, not three. He's talking about the Father being the vine dresser. We're going to get into that as we go. Uh, so, so the question is, is who is this branch that is in me? Because he says in me and is lost when he says every branch in me does not bear fruit, he takes away. The answer is in the gospel of John, there are many believers that are not true believers. In chapter two, verse 23, it says that many of the people saw the signs that he was doing and they believed in him. Now, you remember, if you've been here through our studies in the Gospel of John, we saw that Jesus set the bar here, and the people consistently put their faith here. They had a stunted faith. They, Man, you know, let's go watch some more miracles after lunch. That was fun. You know, and instead of it producing faith in him as Messiah, instead of it having the desired result, we've seen over and over and over again, even when he rode into Jerusalem, they're saying, save now, meaning throw off the yoke of Rome. Don't, they were more interested in what was going on in their country and what was going on around them than in the fact that they needed salvation from themselves. And so as we look at this, there's, in 2.23, they believed in him because of the signs, but they really had a stunted faith. Uh, there are disciples who are not true disciples. We look at in chapter 6. Remember when he fed the 5,000 the next day, he goes over and he preaches in the synagogue in Capernaum on the other side of the Sea of Galilee on the northern shore there. And, and he says, unless you eat my body and drink my flesh, you have no part with me. And what does it say happened? Most of the people left. And his disciples, it says, were not walking with him anymore. There is the chosen 12. And yet one of them was a devil. We see that in chapter 6, verse 70. Now, I wanna, in the same way, there are branches who I believe are not true branches. They're in me, but not truly in me. A couple of things about that. It's not for us to try to identify them. Be careful, folks. This is not an invitation for you to become a fruit inspector. Not good. Man, I'll tell you what, you'll be, <laughs> you 
you'll be creating a lot of trouble for yourself. Jesus is very specific. He says, you leave that to me. I'll weigh that out at the end of the age. I'll be the one on the threshing floor of eternity and I'll be the one that separates the chaff from the grain. He says, don't you worry about trying to separate the, wheats, the wheat from the weeds. Don't you be trying to separate the sheep from the goats. It's not your job. You're to love. And we'll talk about that as we go. But that's our position in this. The second thing is, is how often have you in, in connected to this? And I, I've talked about biblical examples where we see people that really don't believe even though they claim a form of faith. The Bible says that person has a form of godliness but denies the power thereof. It talks about storms without water. It talks about all kinds. There are examples all over the New Testament about people that claim to be believers that are not. And I believe that's who Jesus is talking about here. And that person's cut off. It's not about you or I, if we are in the vine and we are a branch and we are a healthy branch and there's fruit in our life because the Holy Spirit is alive and well. Have you ever talked to somebody who said, well, I believe in God. And then you go, oh my goodness, I know about your life. Uh, there's no fruit. There's nothing going on. This isn't about a, a short-circuited faith. This isn't about, well, my God would never do that. I've had people tell me that so many times and what's in my heart when they say that. Well, well, my God would never judge people for, and it's like, really? I may not like what it says here in his word, but it's his word. And when I want to do an end run on that, when I want to lean to my own understanding, when I want to rewrite what he says, do you realize the danger in that? I am actually putting God in subjection to my fallen ability to reason? Not good. And yet there are people out there, I mean, there was a survey I read one time of about like 95 million Americans uh, were Christians. This is back when we were like 250 million or whatever, a number of years ago. And I was like, really? And that, that, that should be claimed to be Christians because the church, folks, the people of God all through redemptive history have been a remnant. There's a small portion of those that actually make that claim. And I believe that Jesus is supporting that truth in his statement here. So, why is the Father included in this metaphor? In verse 5, he says, I'm the vine and you're the branches. He doesn't even bring the Father up. So why is he included in this? And, and it's very important that he is. Uh, even though you could make this metaphor kind of stand on its own by talking about just the vine and the branches, the Father does have something to do in this, and why Jesus included him in this is very important. The way that metaphors work is that they have a limited focus. If you broaden the focus of this metaphor from Jesus is the vine, we as the branch, the Father is the vine dresser, and go beyond what Jesus intended, it will communicate falsehood and not truth. Example, verse 11. He says, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. And just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. You got to understand what he's talking about here. He's saying, look, I, I've set the example of the way that I and the father, uh, that I, I, I draw from him. If you go too far with that and you start ascribing the same, the, the way that Jesus relates to the father is way different than the way that we relate to him. I mean, that is creator God in the Father and the Son. 
and they relate entirely differently than creation, creator. So you can't make the metaphor stand in that. But that's not what Jesus' intention is. I'm just trying to demonstrate the danger of trying to go too far. If you do that, you can start ascribing aspects of deity to man. And I was in a false religion for many years that did just that. And this is one of the passages they used to support it. So be careful. A metaphor is limited in its extent. If you try to stretch it out too far, as I said, to make it walk on all fours, you can end up in real dangerous ground. So the difference is in the way that Jesus abides in the Father, the way that we abide in him. It's, it's all the difference in the world. And yet, what is he saying in this? There's two things that the Father, the vine dresser, does in this metaphor, in this, in this illustration that Jesus is giving. The first is, and they're very simple, the first is God takes away fruitless branches. He takes them away. The second is that he prunes fruitful branches, that it's with him with whom we have to do. It's important for us to know as we abide in the vine and get our life and our power from the vine that he cuts away the lifeless and he cultivates the living. It's important for us to know that he destroys the lifeless and yet he disciplines and he gives life to the living, to the, to the branch, the one that is connected to him, that abides in him. Understand this. I, again, this is something that breaks my heart as a pastor. I hear it from time to time. Somebody's going through a real tough time. Somebody's going through a trial or something that there's a heartache, there's a, some grief, whatever it is. And, and they'll say, well, I think God must be mad at me. God must be mad at me or this wouldn't be happening in my life. No, the fact is he is in love with you if you belong to him, if you abide in the vine. He loves you with a, a love, the depths of which you will not figure out this side of heaven. But I'll tell you what, that, that doesn't stop me from taking every bit of it that I can. He loves you. He's not mad at you when you go through things. He allows things. He actually engineers things to to. to cause us that's the pruning that he's talking about we go through things but they're there to produce the peaceable fruit of righteousness as he says in hebrews chapter 12 we go through these things peter said why are you surprised when you go through these fiery ordeals it's part of what is there to conform you to the image of his son romans 8 28 he god causes all things to, to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose that's the people that he prunes here and his purpose in Romans 8, 29 is that whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So as he is doing this pruning, that's a good thing. It might hurt. He doesn't take pleasure in that, but he does want to bring us to a place where he is getting the world out of me and the kingdom in. And he does that through chastisements. He does that through uh, various trials. He does that through the pruning that he does, that he performs in each of our lives. The writer of the Hebrews is so bold to say, you know what, if you're without that, it's questionable as to whether or not you belong to him. Connected to this. In Luke chapter 8, verse 18, Jesus says something very similar to what we see in verse 2 here. He says, to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. Very similar. Verse 3. 
He says, you're already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Let's talk about abiding for a minute. It's a nice Bible word. I'm an abider. What on earth does that mean? Simply this. It means to have your life intertwined with the vine. To abide in him is to, again, it's not about doing, folks. This is not a story. This is not a passage about doing. It's about abiding. And abiding means I am entered, my life is intertwined with his. And as I abide in him, it's his nourishment that comes to me. It's his, it's his power that comes to bear in my life. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that can only take place as I abide, as I connect my life to his. And when he talks about fruit, abiding is, listen, this is important. Abiding is the condition upon which fruitfulness can take place. I'll say it again. Abiding is the condition upon which fruitfulness takes place. What do you mean by that, Pastor John? Well, if you're not abiding, you're not going to have any fruit. You're disconnected from the vine as a branch. And he talks about what happens to them. Again, this all supports looking at it in the way of fruitless branches will be cut away and burned. They're useless. They're of no value. They're of no benefit. And the way that we become a branch that is fruitful is through simple faith in him. And as I believe that he has done the work to redeem my soul, to purchase me from the jaws of death, because that's what happens when we don't, then I know that my life is nourished in him because I'm abiding in him. I'm connected to him. I'm intertwined with him and he with me. It's a two-way street. And it doesn't mean that things are always going to be wonderful. It doesn't mean that when people find out you're a Christian, they're going to pat you on the head and tell you they love you and what a wonderful person you are. Often we go through hardships. Often people don't like us. Often it's the light of the gospel of Christ in us without saying a word that's repulsive to people. And get used to it because as you abide in the vine, that'll happen. And if it's not happening, perhaps you need to tighten up on the abiding. As a matter of fact, in 1870, a year after God touched Taylor Hudson's heart through John 15, his wife and his newborn son died of cholera. One year after God deeply touched this man's heart through this passage, he knew, you know, Acts chapter 17 talks about that God appoints the time of our habitation. He knows the days of our lives. Ecclesiastes 3, there's a season, a time to be born, a time to die. He knew that that would be the case for his wife and his son, his newborn son. And through that, and I'm not saying that God killed him so that he could get to Taylor. That's not what I'm saying, but he uses it. And he uses the things that we go through for our benefit. He will use anything and everything, folks. Don't think that he's mad at you. Just understand what the will of God is. His thoughts are above your thoughts. His, his ways are above your ways are beyond your finding out. And simple faith in him, yes, in some ways it's blind. It's not blind because he's given us enough. But in some ways, it's, it's the saying, Lord, come what may. I am not going to disconnect myself from you 
because you're the only source of nourishment and life that I could ever, ever possibly dream of obtaining. I sometimes sit, guys, and, and I think, what would my life look like if I wasn't, if I didn't have Christ in my heart, in my life? And, I, and it just, it, it, to me, it, the picture that comes to mind is, is just like this vast desert. And there's nothing there. It's true, but again, in Acts 17, it says, in him we live and we move and we have our being. We draw our very breath because he holds that in his hand. He upholds, in Hebrews, he tells us he upholds all things by the word of his power. That's what it is to abide in the vine. That's what it is to abide in Christ. If that's not the way your life has been organized, you can fix it today. If that's not what is going on in your heart, you can fix it today. You can fix it by praying a simple prayer. Lord, I want to abide in the vine. I don't want to be the fruitless branch that's cast out and burned. And by faith, I come to you and I say, Father, I just give my heart to you. I, I see that my life amounts to nothing outside of this abiding in you. And I trust the work that you did on that cross was for me. For me. And now come into my heart, come into my life. As I abide in you, I pray that you would strengthen me. I pray that your life would flow to me through the Holy Spirit. That I would find life for the first time. Because folks, up until that point, according to what the Bible says, you're the walking dead. Serious stuff. Verse 5, I am the vine and you're the branches. And he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Nothing means nothing. If you're into trying to fix yourself up, stop it. <laughs> Submit yourself to him. Let him work in you. Let him work through you. Let him communicate his will to you through that still small voice, through his word, through circumstances. It will always line up with who he is. But allow him to do the work that he wants to do. You, if you want to be connected to the vine, but you don't want that energy flowing the other way, you don't want his life flowing into you, it's really, you're trying to mess with things that he's already set up. And he doesn't give us permission to do that. He's sovereign. I, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, it's his ball. It's his ball game. He makes the rules. We don't get to choose. We can either go with the way he set it up or not. I want to look at biblical metaphors for a minute. Uh, interesting. He says here that we're branches and he's the vine. Uh, we've been talking about that. I don't need to belabor that anymore. He also says that we're members in the body. And in the, that context, it, we're told he is the head of the body. This is the one body, many parts, but he's the head. The Bible tells us that we are stones in the temple. We're living stones, Peter says. And in that context, he is the chief cornerstone. It says we're brothers and sisters in the family. The Bible tells us that he's the firstborn among many of the brethren. There's a common thread in this. His supremacy. 
Thus, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing means nothing. Stop trying to abide. If you are walking around with a dark cloud over your head thinking, I just can't ever measure up, I can't do enough, I can't seem to... You know, you know what I'm talking about. That whole chatter that gets there. The, the, the enemy is great at condemnation. And I was talking to somebody this week. Condemnation is very general. It's sort of that sense of... I just don't know if God is happy with me. Forget that thought. He is happy with you eternally if you are connected to the vine. I don't, I can't do it. I can't, ah, man, I'm always screwing it up. No, no, no. No. Wait. He is your sufficiency. Yes, it, it, the difference between condemnation, which is kind of general, this little dark cloud just rains on you all day long, and we all have days like that. Don't look at me with Sunday faces. We do. I do. So maybe I'm the only honest one. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Seriously, guys, I'm teasing. <laughs> but we all have days where we just have this sense of foreboding. That just that, man, I just can't seem to get it together. I just can't get it right. Man, I just ticked off my wife. No offense, honey. But, you know, we, ha we have those times where we don't have confidence. What he's saying here is, as you abide in me, that's worked out. Understand that he loves you and he truly loves you unconditionally. The difference between condemnation, that dark cloud and conviction, and we'll talk about it more when we get into John 16, where he talks about the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. But conviction is very specific. John, go apologize to Stacy. Uh, yeah, I know, but no, go apologize to her. You've offended your wife. I know how to push, this is, all right, this, we're not Catholics, but this is confession. I know how to push my wife's buttons. I love seeing faces up here. But truly, I mean, I know those buttons. And, 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 and his conviction is very specific and very pointed when it comes to that. And it's like, stop it. Go and make it right. Put it back together. That's conviction. And that's part of the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not about walking around feeling condemned, like I can't do enough. I'm just a lousy, you know, I'm a very fruitless or whatever it is. Understand too, that not all fruit is discernible and visible. Part of why it's dangerous for us to try to est estimate fruit in another's life. Not all fruit is observable. There are, there are people, I know people in this body that they pray, and I mean, they pray a lot. We don't see that when we're here on Sunday morning, but I'm blessed by it because that's part of their being connected to the vine. You might look at that person, well, what do they do? Don't do that. That's, that's just, that's taking on the work of the Holy Spirit upon yourself, and he will push against that. You won't do well with that, and you'll cause problems. So it's not about no fruit. In verse 6, he says, If anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them, throw them into the fire, and they're burned. He doesn't say if anybody doesn't produce fruit. He says if anybody doesn't abide. Interesting. A little change on wording here. It's there for a purpose. He doesn't say no fruit. He says they don't abide. You can't judge by outward fruit. You cannot don't try slippery slope. 
He also says here that this is the price for not abiding. And it's very serious. To choose not to abide in the vine, life is forfeit. Period. Life is forfeit. You may know people in your circle of friends, in your sphere of influence, in your family that don't abide in the vine. I have them in mine. And my heart is greatly burdened because I want them to know the source of life. I see them going along and struggling in the futility that this world presents. I see them going along and trying to figure out the answers to the problems that they're faced with. And I know that I have the answers, not me, but God has the answers to these things. I see people enslaved to all kinds of things rather than simply bowing the knee. And he says, folks, you'll either bow the knee now or you'll bow the knee then. Either voluntarily now or by being compelled to at the end of the age then. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's either voluntarily now or you will at some point. But at that point, it's too late. He gives, while we, have, while we draw breath, he gives us the option. He gives us, his, he pours his love out. He pours the truth out. And he says, it's up to you whether you pick that up and you take it. And you now choose to let your life be intertwined with mine. Let my strength, let my nourishment, let my life flow to you and through you or not. So the price for not abiding is no vine, no life. It's a sober and significant warning of the danger of not abiding. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, will ask whatever you desire and it shall be done for you. This is again, by contrast, here's the promise to those who abide. Life. And by the way, that more abundantly, the Bible tells us. When he talks about my words, he's talking about the Spirit of God dwelling within. So if you're abiding in the vine, my words, my Spirit will be in you. And, and he says, ask whatever you desire. He's talking about prayer. And it, it'll be done for you. When he's talking about that, Jesus connects abiding to the idea of faithfulness to his words. And it's, he talks about it in chapter 14 when he says, he who loves me keeps my word. He who does not love me does not keep my words. So as I do this, simply he says, ask what you desire. Well, in Psalm 37, David, the psalmist says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. So as my life is connected to him and his nourishment, his sustenance, his life is communicated to me through the spirit, whose desires are they? They're the ones that he puts there. So I'm not, I'm not trying to ask for satisfaction for my lusts. I'm not asking for permission to sin. And that's nonsense. But as I delight myself in him, as my desires become those that he has put there in my heart, he will do it. It's not about me. It's not about me doing. It's about me abiding. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. So what he's talking about here is if, if you're natural grapes, you'd be strong and a strong and fruitful branch. And in doing so, there's lots of grapes there. 
and you're going to honor the vine dresser. You're going to honor the one who has cultivated you, who has pruned you, and who's done the work. By the way, how much work do we do in all of this? None. We simply choose by faith to abide in him, and he produces the work. It's about him, not about me. Anything I try to do to add to the work that he does or he has done will amount to nothing. It's about, it's about the Lord, you guys. So you and I as a branch, our purpose is to glorify God. Not to glorify self, not to talk about how spiritual I am, not to show everybody just what a buffoon I am. It's about him. It's about glorifying him. It's about showing the vine dresser off. Look at the work he's doing in my life. I praise you, Lord, even though this is tough. I praise you for the things that are going on. That's sort of the attitude that's communicated here. Verse 9, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in his love. So what's he talking about there? Wait a minute, is this conditional? No, not really. What it's saying, though, is if I love the Lord, if I love Jesus, if I am, my life is connected to him, I'm going to want to live a life that's pleasing in his sight. Can I earn kissy points with him in that? No, it's not about that. It's about loving him. And in loving him, my life will show it. How's it going to show it? You're loving others the way he's loved me. We've talked about that and we'll talk about that next week because that is the fruit. The fruit of his spirit is love. Manifest as joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's what it's about. Something I came across here. No one is more miserable than the Christian who from for a time, underline, hedges on his obedience. He does not love sin enough to enjoy its pleasures, and he doesn't love Christ enough to relish and pursue holiness. He perceives that his rebellion is wrong, but obedience to him seems restrictive and distasteful. He doesn't feel at home any longer in the world, but the memory of his past associations and the tantalizing lyrics of his old music prevent him from singing with the saints. He is a man most to be pitied and cannot forever remain in that state. There are times, folks, where we can slip a gear. There are times where I know there have been times in my life where I've, uh, the Lord has woken me up from a period of, of having what I consider and I, I, I classify as having a lean soul, leanness of soul, where I just didn't sense that I was, there was much going on. And very often what he does in that is he, he's prying our fingers off of some aspect of living for ourselves that we can more fully live for him. And, and I don't have anybody in mind, I don't know what your circumstances are this morning, and yet if the Lord's speaking to you through that, let go. Allow him to the, do the work that he wants to do. Allow him to perform the divine surgery in your heart to cut out that dead growth and to allow his spirit to come in. I just want to encourage you in that. James talks about the double-minded man. Let not the double-minded man think he's going to receive anything from the Lord. That's what James says. He'd rather be single-minded. It's about him. 
It's about Christ. It's for his glory. It's for his pleasure that my life is lived. It's not about me. It's not about trying to climb to the top of the heap, whatever heap it is. It's about being in him, about being a branch in the vine. Verse 11, these things I've spoken to you that my joy remain in you, may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. As we wrap up this morning, I just want to submit a question. Where does joy come from? Glad you asked. It's the fruit of his spirit. When he says, my joy, it's not my joy, it's his joy in me. As a result, my joy is full. This is what happens with abiding. You understand? He's saying these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be communicated to you. As a result, your joy, as a result of abiding in me, having your life intertwined with me, will be full. So joy is different from happiness. Happiness has its roots, it's rooted in circumstances. I have good circumstances, I'm a happy guy. I have lousy circumstances, not so much. I'm unhappy. And that changes so fast. Have you ever watched little kids? They'll be laughing, 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 playing, playing, and hysterically laughing, and all of a sudden one of them's crying? You know, what on earth happened? They're just a big bundle of emotions, and they're trying to figure it out. But, but emotions change. Because emotions, if, if happiness is rooted in circumstances and communicated through my emotions, then I have an emotional response to my circumstances that's happy or that's unhappy or that's this or that's that. Emotions are not dependable in that. Joy, by contrast, comes from the Holy Spirit. It is rooted in the Holy Spirit of God and communicated to my spirit, not my emotions, but to my spirit. That's why I can have a deep, abiding sense of contentment and joy and have lousy circumstances. It's one of the things that marks us as Christians totally separate from the world. I, I look out there and I see people that are just knocked around. But as a child of the king, as a branch abiding in the vine, I don't always get it right. There's times I react. I hit with some stuff this week. I'm kind of scratching my head going, wow, what's going on? And, and yeah, but, but you want to know something? As I take those things to the Lord and as his joy then begins to invade my soul, it's not dependent on how I feel about it. It's dependent on who he is and what he's doing in it. That's joy. Communicated by the Holy Spirit to my spirit, not communicated by my circumstances to my emotions. That's happiness doesn't hit the same bar. So as we come out of here this morning, as we just consider these things, folks, just, this isn't like, this is a family talk. It's saying, what is this vine and the, the vine dresser and the branches, what does that look like in my life? If there's, if there's things that he's doing in your life, yield to the working of his spirit. Yield to that because he wants to do good things things in your life. If you're simply content and your circumstances are good and things are going along, praise God. But I'll submit to you that you're either, if you're not currently in a trial, you're either coming out of one or you're about to go into one because life comes with lots of trials. As we abide in the vine, he gives us the key 
to unlocking joy in our life in the midst of those things, to know that they're, they're there for my good, to know that they're there for my benefit, and that as I walk with him, as I, as I draw my nourishment from him, as the Holy Spirit is yielded to in my life, I understand, number one, he wants nothing but good things in my life, that his plan for my life is nothing but good, even though it might hurt at the moment. And number two, I know that my response is either to glorify him or to kick and scream. And it's much easier. It's much better. We benefit far more when we simply yield to the working of his Holy Spirit as we go along. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this look in John 15 and for what it means, Lord, to abide in the vine, what it means to produce fruit and what it means when people don't, Lord. So I pray, Father, that you would drive your word home in our hearts today, that, you, that we could apply these things to our lives, that, that we would have as our aim to glorify our Father who's in heaven. We love you. We thank you for your love poured out. We thank you, Father, that you haven't left us as orphans and that your spirit dwells within each one who belongs to you. And as a result, the fruit will come as we simply yield to you. So I pray you would find hearts that are yielded to your work and that we would, Lord, just simply experience the joy that you promise as a birthright to every one of your children. We commit ourselves afresh to you. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.